from John's Gospel, chapter 3, starting at verse 22, and it's found on page 1066. And let's pray as we read God's word. Dear God, thank you so much that we can read your word and that you can speak through it. We pray that you will open our eyes that we might see wonderful things in your law. John chapter 3, starting at verse 22. And after this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside, where he spent some time with them and baptised. Now John was also baptising at Aeon, the asylum, because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptised. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he's baptising and everyone is going to him. To this John replied, A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah but I'm sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and now it is complete. He must become greater. I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you. Do keep uh, that passage open. We're back in uh, John's Gospel uh, this evening, uh, so do stay, keep your Bibles open. Um, let's pray as we come to explore uh, these words together. He, that's Jesus, must become greater. I must become less. Father, please help us to joyfully echo uh, those words of John as we encounter Jesus through the scriptures tonight and as he presses his claim to be the one who uniquely offers us life. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there are many, aren't there, uh, who claim to be able to offer us life, life that we're looking for. You just need to watch a few TV adverts, don't you? Uh, if you own this car, um, if you wore this particular perfume, uh, enjoyed that particular holiday or drank that particular beer, then our sorry excuse for life would be uh, dramatically transformed and would and we'd have life uh, for the taking. But many of us do discover, don't we, that uh, despite those, those impressive claims, uh, most of what gets offered fails 
to deliver, sometimes spectacularly so. I've used this before. Remember the famous uh, adverts uh, for, the, for the Marlborough cigarette brands? Come to Marlborough country and experience life. There's those dramatic pictures of mountains, that rugged cowboy inviting us to experience life by coming to Marlborough country. I remember as a kid being captivated by those images. Of course, the irony was the very thing that promised life uh, proved more effective at taking it away. And many remember that how that cowboy spent the part the last few months of his life trying to sue the company whose product eventually killed him. Well, already in John's Gospel, we've seen John presenting Jesus' claim to be the one who can give life. Indeed, we saw at the very start of our series that John's whole purpose in writing this Gospel is to convince us that Jesus is the one, the only one, who can deliver on life. Do you remember how John ends his gospel? Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. And from the outset we've seen, haven't we, Jesus, uh, through John, presenting his credentials and pushing his claim. And last time, in conversation with that religious bigwig, Nicodemus, we heard Jesus again pressing his claim. Just as Moses lifted up the, the, the snake in the wilderness, says Jesus, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. And before that conversation ends, Jesus repeats his life-giving offer, doesn't he, in those most um, amazing words we've already heard again this evening. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And once again, in our passage this evening, John, uh, the gospel writer, is making that very same claim, isn't he? Just flip down to the very end of our passage, verse 36. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever rejects the son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. There's that offer of life again, but did you notice just how exclusive that offer is? How shockingly black and white John is when it comes to how that life is to be experienced. Believe in Jesus the Son, receive life. Reject Jesus, look elsewhere for life, and know God's anger and condemnation. You see just how shockingly binary uh, John is. I found myself this week filling out a survey, one of those nice surveys, where you get to select from a generous range of responses. Strongly agree, agree, somewhat agree, neither agree or disagree, etc, etc. I guess like a lot of politicians, I don't like that simple yes or no very often. I prefer grey to black and white. I prefer to hedge my bets. But what about this claim at the end of our passage? Let me read those words again. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Agree or disagree? Yes or no? I guess many of us would tick the agree box in this room when faced with that very stark claim. But even this week, I found myself in a conversation with a non-Christian uh, talking in greys rather than in black and white. I was very happy to present the first part of, that, uh, of this verse, that in Jesus there's life to be found but distinctly reluctant to press home the exclusivity of that offer. And, and even more reluctant to be as clear as John 
about what it means to ignore Jesus' offer. So even as I was preparing this sermon this week, I had to ask myself, do I really believe verse 36? Do I believe its starkness, its black and whiteness? And believe it enough to be as clear as Jesus and John with those who I share Jesus with. Even if it means being labelled uh, a dangerous bigot. Well, I think the Gospel writer John knows, doesn't he, how high the stakes are. And so in our passage, as well as uh, stating Jesus' great claim, a dividing claim, he presents crucial testimony and evidence to show why we can trust Jesus and stake everything, our reputations, even our lives, on that claim. And as we explore that testimony, we'll see why John the Baptist is more than willing to, to take the heat, uh, to be cancelled, uh, to be diminished, in his words, to become less, as he stands firmly on that claim and is committed to advancing it. And the first piece of testimony we are given comes in verses 27 to 30. Uh, Jesus alone can offer us life because he is the bridegroom. He is the bridegroom. Well, our passage begins, doesn't it, verse 22, with John, uh, the gospel writer, uh, telling us that Jesus and his disciples have set up their own baptising operation in the countryside around Judea. And if we're reading with our antenna up, our thoughts might be, okay, how does that play out with John the Baptist? After all, he's the one who had first cornered the baptism uh, market. Uh, his name's a bit of a giveaway, isn't it? John the Baptist. But now it seems that Jesus is muscling in on John's territory, and according to John's followers, providing a bigger draw than John. And did you notice just how rattled the disciples of John are uh, over this? Verse 26, you can hear it kind of in their words. That man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone's going to him. And you might conclude they have every right to be rattled. After all, we've already seen what he can do, Jesus, with water at a wedding in Cana. But if we expect John to be threatened and defensive about Jesus baptising, notice his response. He's not rattled. He's not even resigned. Uh, he's rejoicing. Look down at verse 27. A person can only receive what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said I am not the Messiah, but I'm sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. Early in this series, we saw, didn't we, John pointing to Jesus saying, there is the Lamb of God. Confidence that as he says those words, he's pointing out what has been revealed throughout the Old Testament. That substitute Lamb will be led willingly to the slaughter for the sins of the world. And John was on wanted to point out Jesus as uh, the Lamb of God, to be that signpost, pointing away from himself uh, to Jesus. And now again, John points, doesn't he, to Jesus, and this time he says, there is the bridegroom. And as I, we unpack that truth, I hope we're as thrilled about that as John clearly was. Jesus is the bridegroom. It's a stunning claim. Jesus, John is saying here that the Messiah, the one who comes uh, into the world, 
is the one who can offer us the deepest and most intimate of relationships with God himself. And, and the prophecy of Isaiah, I think, is key to grasping the significance of what John is saying about Jesus. Listen to these words from Isaiah 62. They are spoken by God to his sin-sick people, and they should take our breath away. God says, no longer will they call you deserted or name your land desolate. As a young man marries a young woman, as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. Stunning words, aren't they? And even as we hear them, doesn't it uh, do something to our hearts? Longing for that kind of relationship with God, our maker. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so will your God uh, rejoice over you. Uh, over the spat- my spatical, I, was, I took up the challenge of reading through the book of Jeremiah. Um, that is a challenge, um, because the first 30 or so chapters of this longest book in the Bible, from the fact you might pick up, um, are full of unrelenting gloom. Written to a people rightly under God's uh, judgment, Jeremiah declares that because of their flagrant uh, rebellion and serial unfaithfulness, God's people are going to experience exile, a terrible time of upheaval and deep gloom, where there'll be no place for celebration. I listen to some words from that uh, prophecy that repeats itself a number of times. God says, I will bring an end to the sounds of joy and gladness and to the voices of bride and bridegroom in the towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem, for the land will become desolate. I was, those, I was reading those words and again reflecting on them over this week and thinking about Gaza community where the sound of joy and gladness, a celebration of weddings has been silenced, a community desolate. But in spite of that deep unfaithfulness of God's people, uh, the way they run after other gods, other lovers as it were, Jeremiah becomes a prophet of unexpected hope. Here's the same prophet speaking in chapter 33. Yet in the towns of Judah, And the streets of Jerusalem that are deserted, there will be heard once more the sound of joy and gladness, the voices of bride and bridegroom, and the voices of those who bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord, saying, Give thanks to the Lord Almighty, for the Lord is good, his love endures forever. So Jeremiah looked forward to a new day, a day of salvation, a day of deliverance, uh, to a new age of rejoicing of bridegrooms and brides. But I don't think he was just talking about human marriages. But along with Isaiah, he was looking forward to a new age, a time when the Lord would come himself and bring about a new relationship with those who would turn to him. A wonderful, intimate relationship, eclipsing even the very best of human marriage. And now do you see, John the Baptist gives his testimony, the bridegroom has come. God himself has come to establish that promised relationship, this marriage. Well, no wonder John is is full of joy as he's given that special privilege of welcoming the groom. You see, he knows it's revealed to him that the voice of Jesus is the voice of that promised bridegroom. And if that makes John the best man, uh, he has the job of preparing for his arrival. 
It also is a job, isn't it, to quietly step out of the limelight when the groom arrives. I was thinking, how, how is John the Baptist so sure that Jesus is the bridegroom, that promised bridegroom? Well, God has told him, verse 27, he's revealed to John the identity of Jesus. But just in case we're worried that John is hearing voices in his head, uh, doesn't what we've seen already in the Gospel of John uh, confirm Jesus' identity? I'm thinking about the wedding at Cana. Do you remember that wedding that was about to hit the skids? Um, the tradition was the bridegroom present provided um, for the wedding. But in this instance, the bridegroom spectacularly fails as the wine runs out, doesn't it, before the celebrations are complete. And what does Jesus do? He quietly steps into the bridegroom's shoes. He becomes the great provider, doesn't he? He sorts out the mess. He stops it becoming a car crash in a most incredible and glorious way. And do you remember the moment that the MC of the wedding summons the bridegroom and congratulates him on the wine? Not just its abundance, but also its quality. And mistakenly thinking that the groom deserves the credit for providing so lavishly, even supplying the best till last. But we know, uh, Mary knows, the disciples know, and all the servants know, it was Jesus. He humbly and graciously stepped into the bridegroom's shoes. He is the promised bridegroom that saves the day, that overcomes the shortfall by being the great provider. So John the Baptist, as he hears about that wedding, this miraculous provision that salvages that wedding, saves the day, well, he's more than willing to be the best man to get off the stage, to become less, to give Jesus the limelight so that many might catch, catch a glimpse of the groom. And notice, he, uh, he doesn't do it grudgingly or reluctantly. He rejoices to step away to ensure that Jesus is center stage because he knows he's the bridegroom. Only he can fix our relationship, our broken relationship with God. And already John has hinted Jesus will do that, not in providing wine, but sacrificing himself as God's lamb, shedding his blood. The blood that is symbolised in the wine that we're going to be drinking shortly, that Jesus provides for us. I've been to a few weddings, I guess most of us have, some quite recently, I can think of a few. Um, uh, and most of them have had best men, haven't they, I imagine, it's quite a common thing. But just imagine for a moment, the music starts, People rise to their feet. The bride makes her entrance. And as they get to the vows, the best man sort of decides to break with tradition. Instead of uh, moving aside, he elbows the groom out of the way, grabs the microphone, and launches into an impromptu routine of jokes and some karaoke. It would be unthinkable, wouldn't it, really? Within a few seconds, the guests would be howling, wouldn't they, as to something to stand aside. Indeed, to muscle in when he was never meant to be centre stage. It's a height of arrogance, isn't it, really? It'd be horrific. John knows his place, and he rejoices to see Jesus increase. He takes centre stage, even if it means he becomes less. It's not uh, reluctant. He's, he's happy for his ministry to be eclipsed by the one who alone can bring that relationship that you're made for. So John's disciples thought that John would, be, would see Jesus as a rival, John knows that Jesus is the great relationship bringer. And he, as he hears Jesus' voice, it's not the voice that threatens, but it's the voice of the bridegroom, the life giver who comes to offer us um, a marriage made in heaven.
And his response is utterly appropriate, isn't it? Uh, that joy is mine and is now complete. He must become greater, says John. I must become less. Following a conversation with a friend this week, I was reflecting on why so many people keep Jesus uh, at arm's length. Uh, why so many refuse to embrace Jesus and his offer of life. I guess many would argue it comes down to a lack of convincing evidence. But I hope as we've worked our way through John at uh, the first few chapters, the evidence is piling up, isn't it? And it is compelling evidence. Now, it isn't the real reason we and others want to keep Jesus at a distance to reject his offer of life. It's because we see Jesus as a, as a rival, a threat, someone who will tread on our turf, who will take the wheel of my life and insist on taking centre stage. You see, holding on to the wheel, making it about me, my life about me, is like the best man muscling in on the show, refusing to step aside for the groom. And our resistance isn't heroic, is it? It is cringeworthy. John is very clear. If we refuse Jesus, if we reject the bridegroom, we will find ourselves condemned, condemned to a life that misses out on that relationship we were created for and ache for missing out on that gift and rightly experiencing instead God's anger and condemnation. Isn't it striking? As Jesus moves in on John the Baptist's turf, verse 22, John doesn't resist, he rejoices. Perhaps the one thing we, do, we think we do better than anyone else is run our own lives. No one tells me how to live my life, we say to me, but now as Jesus offers us life under his lordship, a relationship with the God who wants to rejoice over us as his bride and to provide for us. John urges us, he, he pleads with us, doesn't he, not to resist, not to reject Jesus as a rival, but to hand over the wheel of our lives and rejoice as we welcome him the bridegroom. Jesus is the bridegroom, says John, the one to put at centre stage if we are to know life and joy. Secondly, just very briefly, uh, Jesus is also the life giver because he is the uh, prophet, just briefly. This was back a few years back, but I was uh, working in university and I was sitting in a chaplaincy building one, after, one lunchtime and a group of four students walked in, sat down and started talking, mainly because of the venue they were in. They started to talk about Christianity and about Christians and quickly they voiced their cynicism about both. Christians are such hypocrites. That's how it started. But soon it moved on to the arrogance of Christians. Not least their claim that Jesus is the only way to God and to life. As I listened, the, heat, the discussion got more and more heated. And part of me wanted to, to, to join in. And part of me wanted to run for the door. I joined in. Um, admittedly with some trepidation. And as soon as I discovered it, it was precisely the kind of claim that John is making here in verse 36 that made their blood, blood boil. They didn't have a problem with Jesus per se, but a problem with Christians who argued for the exclusivity of Jesus, to insist that he was the way rather than just a way to God and to life. That's what got them really hot under the collar. And as I started to feel their hostility, uh, the big temptation was to back off to talking greys rather than in black and white, the kind of language that John uses here. 
But look down at what John says. Let me read from verse 31. These are really important words. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard. John is very clear, isn't he? He says, in effect, I'm from the earth. And when it comes to speaking about heavenly things, I'm just a messenger. I'm just passing on what I've been told. But Jesus is the one who comes to earth from heaven. So when he speaks, he alone can speak directly about what he has seen and heard. John, I think, is saying, in effect, as a prophet, I can point to the one from heaven and speak of what, he has, been, what has been revealed to me uh, by Jesus. But Jesus is the prophet, the one who is above all, the one from heaven who uniquely has the authority to reveal firsthand what we could never know on our own or figure out by ourselves. Indeed, when it comes to revealing truth to us, Jesus has no rivals, does he? We're not in the same league. Well, back to my conversation at the university. Uh, one of the four students, having denounced the arrogance of Christians to claim Jesus the only way, the only life giver, presented his own version of reality. I remember very well, he insisted we should think of God, uh, uh, of discovering God and spiritual life as a kind of like a path. You might have heard this before, a path up a mountain. But we're all on different paths. We only see ours but they all end up pretty much in the same place. They all give us an experience of God and a route to meaningful and fulfilling life. And that, he concluded, was the truth. Uh, his truth. And we'd all be better off and far less arrogant coming to his points of view. But maybe you've heard that same kind of idea. The mountain and many paths. And so many people think it sounds incredibly humble, doesn't it? Uh, generous, less narrow, less exclusive. And many argue that if we in all religions thought that way, then wouldn't the world be a better place and safer for everyone concerned? What would John say? Well, John is very clear, isn't he? He says, when it comes to getting to God, to receiving life, eternal life in heaven, he insists that only Jesus can deliver. He's the one path that leads to life. Later in the same gospel, John, uh, Jesus will spell out that truth very, very bluntly. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And he makes that huge claim uh, as one who comes from God, from the Father, from heaven, who knows firsthand what he's talking about and can testify to what he has seen and heard in a way that no one else can do. So do you see, uh, that, as that guy in the chaplaincy made his point, far from showing humility, he was the one displaying the greatest arrogance. Just think again of the image of the mountain. Jesus, the one from heaven, standing at the top, declares that uniquely to come to God, you come through Jesus. And there's that guy in the chaplaincy saying, do you know, if only Jesus could see more clearly like I can. If only he had a better view like I have, then he would know there are many different ways. But when someone says they have a better view than Jesus, you 
can see more clearly than him. That's not humility, is it? That is the height of arrogance. Jesus isn't just a prophet. He is the unique prophet, the one whose words we can alone trust. Well, John, the gospel writer, knows, doesn't he, that uh, Jesus' words and claims will be met with disbelief and hostility. And so will those who claim that for Jesus too, Christians. But you notice John encourages us, if we humbly accept Jesus' testimony, if we believe in him and trust him for eternal life, we discover that his offer of life is real. Jesus doesn't take life or spoil it. He gives it. He gives us his life through the Spirit in abundance, without limits. It's as if John says, don't just take my word for it. Trust Jesus and discover that his offer is for real and found nowhere else. Let's pray. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever rejects the Son will not see life for God's wrath remains on them. John could not be clearer. Jesus, you could not be clearer. Thank you. You are that bridegroom who uniquely opens the way to a relationship with the living God who made us and rejoices over us. Thank you. In a world of many voices, you alone are that voice we can trust and stake our hopes on. And as we see just how Glorious you are, Jesus, may we echo John's words, joyfully letting you take centre stage, delighted to be less, so that you might become more precious to us and more visible to those around us.